Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This Encore Podcast with Gary Marshall was originally posted July 20th, 2016. Gary Marshall died on July 19th, 2016 at the age of 81. Over the course of his life, he was a comedy writer, actor, director, and television showrunner, creating shows such as Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Odd Couple, and Mork and Mindy, and directing such successful films as Overboard, Pretty Woman, The Princess Diaries and its sequel, and more recently, Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve. I had a chance to interview Gary Marshall on May 9, 2012, while he was on a book tour for his memoir, co-written with his daughter Laurie Marshall, My Happy Days in Hollywood. The interview was recorded at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California. You wrote for Rogue Magazine, and you wrote pieces about restaurants and travel pieces, and you never went to any of those places. No. You faked it. I, I did. We also wrote movie reviews and play reviews, which we couldn't afford. We were broke in New York. <laughs> Gave us this assignment to write these articles, and we couldn't... Uh, afford to go, but we read other people's reviews and talked to people. We were not just charlatans, totally. And then we knew we were both single, and we dated a lot of stewardesses who traveled to Europe and all these places, and we would ask them, go to a restaurant, tell us about it. And that's how we wrote our restaurant reviews. They got us started. I was a drummer in those days, and not a good one, so I made so much, and we made our, our food. At that point, were you also trying to sell jokes? Yes, we did a lot of, we, we, we thought we were clever. We got a card. We had a card written. It said 100% virgin material by Fred Freeman and Gary Marshall. And a uh, few sad comics, not the big ones, didn't respond. But we wrote jokes and we got paid in food a lot. A lot of times the comic would maybe buy one joke and say, come on, I'll buy you a sandwich. We stayed at a place... We hung out at a place called the Stage Delicatessen, and all the comics were there. You just sat around and thought up jokes, one-liners, two-liners, and said, hey, let's write this down, see if we could sell it? Pretty much. I, I was uh, uh, graduated from the Dill School of Journalism at Northwestern, so I, I got my degree and all my great writing at Northwestern got me a copyboy job on the New York Daily News, so I would write jokes for the columnists, all the columnists, Earl Wilson on the other papers, Robert Sylvester, and yeah, we'd sit around writing jokes and write pages and try to sell them and uh, try to meet people who would hire us uh, to either write, you know, the big clubs in those days, the Copacabana Latin Quarter, and we wrote for the comics who went there. Some of them threw us out. Some uh, bought some stuff. And mostly they paid us in food and sweaters. It takes a lot of guts to just be able to walk up to strange people and say, hey, I got a joke for you. Yeah, but you see, uh, I don't know if you know comics very well. And to this day, comics have a lot of great things. They're always smart. They're always ambitious. But uh, a lot of times they're desperate for material, <laughs> so they always like to listen. They'll, a comic will listen to uh, jokes you have faster than a, a producer will listen to a screenplay or an idea for a show. But comics uh, need the material, and that's what we did. When you were at that age and somebody said your material, you were, of course, glad that they used it. The other side of it, of course, is you got no credit. It was their joke that seemed to have come from them. Yes, it, I guess... The worst, a comedian that I never use again, we don't name names because it's not going kind to of show, but uh, he read my page of jokes. You know, I was also a drummer sometime in a club, and I'd come up and say, hi, here's some jokes, and he took a cigarette lighter, and he lit it on fire, and it just flamed into the garbage pail. And I was very depressed for a minute, but you got to go on. That's what it's about. you got to keep going, and... Uh, the best way we got ahead was we wrote material 
that didn't sound like it was written, so the comic could take all the credit. And we found out early that's what they really liked, is stuff that didn't sound like it was written at all. And that's how I got uh, my first real paying job on The Tonight Show for Jack Parr, was we wrote improvised-sounding material. What's the difference between improvised sounding material and material that doesn't sound improvised? Well, it's the way in the flow of the show, for instance, that Jack Parr would have these various toys or gimmicks and a new iron, a new blender he would sell. And we would write on tape, we would tape jokes to the side of the blender <laughs> in which he would hold it up and then make a remark about the blender and the audience would laugh. But the, the, it was written on the blender. <laughs> Jack Parr was very bored, Johnny Carson, they're smart, but they had guest hosts who weren't. And a lot of times with the guest hosts, we would have to sit off to the side and write jokes as the show was going on. And uh, whatever the subject was, we would uh, write a joke. And if it wasn't funny, it was up to the comic. Well, I mean, they all had their way of being able to cover for jokes that didn't yeah, laugh. Mostly if it died, they said the writers wrote that. We're getting, <laughs> come next week, see the new writers. We wrote that joke to save them. But we did a, a lot of that. And it was great training because it, it made us uh, work under pressure. I think the two most influential creative things was that show when we had to write under the gun, and at uh, Northwestern had a wonderful class where you had to write a story, and they messed you up. It was like a lab class, and you would be writing a story, and on purpose, the typewriter would break, the ribbon would fall out, the bells would go off, there'd be a tour coming through, it did everything to distract you. Uh, so I learned to write under whatever the, the pressure was, and uh, that's what bode us well, my partner Fred Freeman and I at the time. I don't buy writer's block. Someone said to me, what happens if you're doing an interview and you run out of questions? And my answer is, I ask another question. Yeah, you can't do writer's block and be in the fast track of show business. Many of the times we wrote for the comedians in Vegas and it would be, boom, the drum roll, ladies and gentlemen, the Sands Hotel. And I'd be saying to Joey Bishop, here, I drove so far, you know, a car, there's so much traffic, I drove from here to the strip in neutral, you know, I'd be as the drums were going. So you get used to that. Okay, you got to television via Joey Bishop. I mean, yes. you've gotten the gig and then Joey Bishop brought you to Hollywood. That yeah, got you out he there. Did. He's the man who brought us to Hollywood. Okay, when you started writing sitcoms, were you the people who were coming up with the uh, with the framework, the plot of any given show, or were you just throwing jokes in as as it went along? Well, we first were hired as punch-up writers, means we didn't write the script. We got no credit. We just tried to get what was the script bought that week. We would add jokes, and with doing it over a period of time, we kept begging, could we write one script? And uh, we did write our first script for Joey Bishop and then started writing for the other shows. But I must say, Carl Reiner, who was a great mentor of mine, wouldn't hire us in those days because he said what you just said. He, they write jokes. They're joke meisters. They don't know how to do a story. And slowly we learned to, to do a story. I didn't know this, but in, in an interview you gave about the book, you said the Dick Van Dyke show where somebody was charting uh, moles on somebody's yeah. back, and that came from an actual incident that happened on the beach with you? Yeah, well, Carl Reiner taught us that you don't have to always use your imagination, and the writers on the Dick Van Dyke show, there was like four or five, would sit around and you would basically tell the most embarrassing moment you just lived or how badly you did with girls and what embarrassed you was a child, what your parents did to you. And my mother once said to me, because I had moles on my back, she said, if I connect all your moles, like collect uh, the dots, I will get a picture. And so I was I was 11 years old. I was embarrassed to take my shirt off at the beach and the whole thing. But later, Lenny Bruce once said, pain plus time equals humor. And years later, I wrote that episode of Dick Van Dyke where they connected the moles on Dick Van Dyke's back. Well, when you're writing an episode like that, or even for the tons of shows you did later on uh, for your own productions, what do you start with? Just this idea? I mean, I know that I Love Lucy, for instance, she started with the skit. You know, the last that, scene. Yeah, Lucy and then work like, backwards. Yeah. But what? how did you do it generally? Did you start with people sitting around saying, okay, here's an idea, and then stretch it into a half hour? 
Yeah, pretty much the Lucy show you wrote the last scene first, the big block funny scene, and then you got to it. And on the other show, Dick Van Dyke, Danny Thomas just started with the family problem, and Dick Van Dyke was kind of a little further out problem. And uh, you see if you could make it into a story. You know, sometimes we failed. Once Laura, Rob Petrie's wife, found a picture of her husband with Hitler in the drawer. We never got the rest of the story, but we <laughs> thought that was a good start. How did he say he was in the army? When did he take a break? That was a little far out, but a lot of our real experiences became shows, and my wife would see sometimes our life I would sell, <laughs> and she suddenly said, you know, I should get paid. That was my idea, and uh, I used to give her $25 if you use something from her life. When I talked to Nora Ephron, she said that since her parents were screenwriters, yes, everything, very... she grew up, everything that happened in the family was fodder. So when she yeah. began writing, everybody expected it. Yeah. Nothing nothing is unused. No, I use other people's life. I use my <laughs> life. I use whatever I could because we were writing for you know more than one show at the same time in those days. Were you actually the showrunner for Odd Couple? We were very lucky. My partner, Jerry Belson, the new partner, came and we did some movies and they didn't do much. I liked doing them. I didn't direct them. I wrote them and produced. And then we went back to TV because they were going to do The Odd Couple. And uh, Neil Simon didn't want to have really anything to do with it because they had made a deal to help us play. And then in the typical show business, they didn't give him much to do for TV. So we were brought in as the showrunners, and uh, that was the first time I was a showrunner. It was called an executive producer. Yeah. It just meant where the buck stops is you. And if they don't come up with an idea, the writers don't come up with it, you got to come up. But that particular show was also different because you had two very specific stars who added whatever they were going to add, and you just sat back. Well, the two stars were great, Tony Randall and, and Jack Klugman, but it was also a matter of Neil Simon had created two brilliant characters right, yeah. that were easy to write. So we we, uh, we didn't get creative, but we got developed by Belson and Marshall. But it was five years of some great stuff that they did, and we wrote them some very good stuff, and Every once in a while, Tony would say to Jack, well, we got like half a show here. We're going to have to carry the second act on our back. And they did. <laughs> I had heard talking about ad-libbing that there were portions of the scripts of Mork and Mindy where it would just say, Robin Williams does his thing. Was that true? The newspapers kept saying that. So one week we gave him a totally blank script and said, Robin, do your thing. And uh, he said, no, no, they write that. I didn't say that. And so every week he got a script and he would certainly riff off the script. Right. Yeah. But he always had a script. He did a terrific job. I had four shows on the air and I was a little uh, delving into other things. So I felt the first two years of Morgan Mini were great. After that, we got a little... Uh, as I, a word I created, jump the shark. <laughs> that comes into a whole other thing. But let, let me ask you this question, because it, it isn't in the book. The big show that you worked on was Happy Days. Take us through quickly an episode of Happy Days. How does it start? Do you sit around and go, this is our budget? Okay, guys, come up with something. How did a specific show start, let's say? Well, I would go off for spring vacations, and I would come up with 22 premises, because that's how many shows we were doing. And I'd come back, and I'd say, here's some premises, and I'd call the writers. And some, they said, oh, I don't know where that goes, and this goes. But, oh, I want to do that. And they, they'd say, I can flesh that out with a phrase. And they'd take one show, and, uh, you know, whatever. I said, uh, when I used to try to pick up girls, in uh, New York City, I went to Yorkville, there was a lot of foreign girls, so we couldn't meet them, so we made believe we were also foreign and didn't speak English. And we got in trouble once with one girl got very mad. That was an episode of Happy Days. So later, the show had to feature Fonzie because he was evolving. Shows evolved. I did a show called Hey Landlord. It was the biggest bomb. It was 99th in the ratings. We did 34 episodes. Now you do a show, don't hit, in three episodes, you're gone. So those days we had a chance to evolve it, and Happy Days evolved with Fonzie became a bigger character, and uh, there was, uh, if you recall, uh, Richie had a brother who disappeared. Did it just happen that one day he was gone? Did you ever think about it? Did I think about it? Yes, I was, uh, <laughs> I was saying, how am I going to do this? But I remember on Burns and Allen, 
which made an impression on me. I watched Burns and Allen. One day, the doorbell rang and George Burns went to the door. And on his way to the door, he stopped, he turned to the camera, he said, the man who is the boss last week, that actor, is not available. We have another man playing my boss. And then that opened the door. That's what I wanted to do. Richie had a brother. The brother's gone. They wouldn't let me do that. They just said, ignore it. Nobody will write a letter. Some people wrote, but we had two <laughs> brothers. As it evolved, it became apparent that Fonzie was Richie's older brother. And we didn't need an older brother. Well, when you were working on all those shows, how much of a pain in the butt was the studio? Or did they pretty much, after a while, say, Gary Marshall knows what he's doing, we'll let him play? They rarely said that, but some, you know, gave me the benefit of the doubt <laughs> and said, all right, if you like it that way. But it mostly was budding in, in uh, not so much the, the creative as the uh, uh, politically correct. We couldn't do anything about civil rights. We couldn't do anything dirty, we, anything sexy. And they would always say, it's 8 o'clock. You can't do that at 8. I said, well, put us on at 10. You can't do it at 10 either, but worse at 8. <laughs> well, you, you said before we went on the air, your wife is political and involved in yeah. democratic circles. Did she ever say, hey, I'd like for something a little bit more political? And you said, no, we can't? Yes, we had a whole thing. Uh, there was an episode of Happy Days where Fonzie went on, in our mind, the show I thought of, was he went on the march in Selma, Alabama. And my wife said, oh, good, you're getting to do some stuff. But the uh, network said we couldn't say Alabama, we couldn't say Selma, and we couldn't say March, what the march was for. <laughs> so we said, Fonzie went off to help people in the South someplace. <laughs> That's when it ended up. So she was very embarrassed. But uh, you try. You keep trying. And then Norman Lear came and changed a lot. And changed everything. Yes. And that gave you freedom. But you were already beginning to think film at that point. Yeah, well, we did with, uh, more stuff on Mork and Mindy, more uh, topical, political, more hip stuff. They, they kept saying, you can't do Saturday Night Live humor at 8 o'clock. And I said, yes, you can if you have Robin Williams, because he says so fast it goes right over people's heads half the time. Did they listen carefully to Williams and say, no, you can't put that on the air? They couldn't keep up with him. Uh, oh, and he good. was an alien. I said, <laughs> God knows what an alien says. I don't know what he said. He's trying to get adjusted to America and our culture. We had a better argument with him. I guess the network's thinking was, well, a crazy guy could say politically incorrect things, but not a sane guy like Fonzie. Jumping the shark. Now, we all know now what it means and you've accepted the fact that when Fonzie jumped the shark that's become terminology for when yes, a show has the, been on one day too long and still uh, part of the vernacular and I take total blame for it and uh, yet we ran four more years so it didn't kill us but it's a good phrase to say that to say a show is going the wrong way did you know at the time on on any of the shows that lasted one or two seasons you say now Mork and Mindy three seasons, but that last season. Do you know at the time, is there some kind of internal mechanism that says, uh-oh, couldn't use the phrase then, but we are jumping the shark? Well, you tell only because I did all my shows with an audience. Some started out without an audience and we went to an audience. And you can tell by the audience uh, how they're coming or what groups you're getting and uh, how you're doing. We never knew Happy Days was jumping the shark when they jumped. They could, but uh, that was a one-camera sequence. The audience right, yeah. saw it on film. But we did know as the uh, the years went by, it was getting a little thinner. Fonzie wasn't fitting in the jacket so well. <laughs> and Richie had left to be a director. So we knew that. Laverne and Shirley... We knew near the end when Cindy was sick and she didn't, and then she was pregnant, then she didn't want to do it anymore. So we knew it was uh, going downhill. Uh, but you don't know, like, jump the shark, did it. You don't know immediately. You got to see how it goes. And then the great thing about television those days, you were allowed to come back. You could right. do a week episode or a show that, you know, cost too much, then you do a show that costs too little. I was part of the creators of the Stuck in a Show. Stuck in a Shows were very cheap because they involved the characters getting stuck in an elevator, stuck in an attic, stuck in the roof, stuck someplace where you didn't have to have any extras or no, no sets, one set, and it worked out pretty well. So we did a big show with the Happy Days band playing and then stuck it. 
the inside joke was always we're doing a dinner with Andre show. <laughs> Just two people talk and leave it alone. So that's the way we got through the uh, network. We're doing dinner with Andre. It was a great picture. So leave us alone. <laughs> I want to get on a little bit to, to your films. You know, for me, some people might say guilty pleasure compared to, say, Kurosawa or Bergman. Mm. But, you know, I can still watch and maybe I turn red face pretty woman or overboard any number of times uh, overboard was very funny uh, underrated picture in the sense they thought it was for the wrong audience it was for a family and they sold it to the higher echelon of academics and it didn't work pretty woman hit about everybody and you know i get called uh, sentimental i do women's pictures i like think women are great complicated people and i that's why i did beaches so I always found uh, a place where uh, my ideas, I think, uh, I could get them made. What do you think of the auteur theory? Do you see yourself, when you're writing the screenplay and the director, do you see yourself as an auteur, or are you just thinking, ah, it's just another collaboration? No, I think you have to have a passion for whatever you're doing. Uh, uh, my favorite film was called The Other Sister, which I wrote with Bob Runner and I directed. And I pretty much said, this is the way it's going to go. And uh, let's do it this way. Others, I have had the uh, collaboration on uh, the what we call the... Uh, the multi-ensemble pictures, Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, you've got to have a couple of punch-up writers. Now I have my own part as a punch-up <laughs> writer. I have my own punch-up writer. And we do it, but it, it's a financial uh, thing that worked for because you got big stars and you didn't have to have them for 12 weeks. But a lot of the work I did, I, I did very serious. And uh, other times I didn't uh, write the script, so I had to take the script, believe in it, and make it my own, which I did with Pretty Woman and many of the other films. And some uh, that I made my own was uh, Exit to Eden, a film that was not heralded. And uh, it was terrible. That's the first time I saw you make a face, Richard. <laughs> well, some people liked it, but it was ahead of its time. Now Fifty Shades of Grey, Universal bought for $5 million and they're going to make it. They called me already to see if I was in. I said, I did that and I bombed. Interviewers ask me, well, do you think it'll work? Uh, I think because the market has really totally changed in movies and there's much more a big international market than the domestic in America. So I think it might make it for him. I mean, you talk about it in the book. Exit to Eden, the big problem with Exit to Eden, it had no focus. I usually lose the battles, win the war. Right. That one, I lost the war. They wanted to make this picture, which I had great... Uh, in the world of S&M and kinky things, love still flourishes. That was my premise. And then they got very nervous and said, I don't think the money people, this was not made by a studio. Right. It was made independent. And the money people said, we don't think it's going to work. I said, I didn't shoot it yet. And they know, but we don't think, you got to make it a comedy. And uh, I had uh, Sharon Stone and like George Clooney and they hired Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd. So figure that out as losing the battle in the war. And it did not come out even near the way I wanted. When you're working on something and they're just interfering, keeping you from doing the work you want to do, I mean, how do you carry on? Well, a lot of times you say, shall I quit or I don't quit? I believe, though, in... Uh, in as embarrassing it is sometimes, you got to finish because uh, it's me... Uh, Gary Marshall, hello, I'm from the Bronx, a nice fella sitting there, but 75 people are working with me. If I quit, a lot of that's going to not work out. And I always worked very hard to make the process plans, and because we don't know how the picture's going to do. So I didn't leave that. I had a, a lot of friends there, and everybody was working very hard. It just didn't work. Well, I've talked to enough people, enough directors, that nobody goes into something knowing it's going to be a bad movie. Well, no. maybe maybe Exit to Eden, you kind of had a hint. Once I <laughs> cast it, I said, we're going to be in trouble here. Yes. But most of the time, you you don't know. When you've got the rushes, is that when you know you've you've got a good movie? When I say good, I don't necessarily mean financially successful. That you'll never know until it comes out. But at what point do you kind of go, this is what I want? Is it after the editing, before the editing? Sometimes it takes the editing. Sometimes you make a whole different picture in the editing room. But a lot of times after three or four weeks, you get, like with Pretty Woman, we knew in two weeks 
this kid was special, this Julia Robinson, the Richard. I remember Richard saying to me, you know, she's terrific, this kid. You don't need me. You need a suit. Why don't you just use my suit and let me go home? I said, no, she needs your support. Uh, he was very helpful in that film. We knew right away that was going to be good. In uh, other cases, we weren't sure. I think with Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason, I knew that would be a solid picture. Whether it made money or not, I don't know. But uh, you really get an indication. Some all the way to the end. I must confess, Overboard, which is a pretty funny picture, we didn't have it till the editing. The first cut of Overboard was four and a half hours. You want to sit for four, out of four and a half, I had to find two good ones. We found two good ones. For a lot of times in comedy, anybody who says, I know exactly what's funny is out of the business by now. But if you say, well, I think this works, let's do it another way just in case. And we shoot it two or three ways. And uh, then we see in the editing room, and so many times I'm fooled. I shoot it and I say, that take was way over the top. Now I get in the editing room, it works. And, and in Pretty Woman, there's this, which was the trailer scene where Richard Gere slams a jewelry box right. on Julia's fingers and she laughs. Wasn't even in the movie. It was for the gag reel, totally. But as we went over the gag reel, we said, you know, this is pretty funny. She really was sincere. Let's try it in the movie. And we put it in the movie at the last minute. We like to make Julia laugh. We teamed up to play one on her, and we had a we had a good time. One thing that struck me in reading your book, Gary Marshall, is how many great moments in both television and film come about spontaneously and just serendipitously. Some say by luck, but luck is much better if you keep trying and you get people who can, as they say, light it up. You know, in movies, there's close-ups of the face. And a lot of actors who are good actors on the stage, when you look at their eyes, there's nobody home. And the audience never says, nobody home, but they know it. And when they see two people kiss and there's no chemistry, they know it. So uh, it's just something that's unwritten because no matter how many years we do this and how much people rap this one and that one, there's a magic to it. And the people know the magic. When you've started working and suddenly you've got your male and female characters and they kiss and you go, no chemistry, what do you do? you got to do it before that. That's too late already. You do it in the screen tests early on. You do. We did uh, seven different men screen tested with Anne Hathaway and the whole test scene was rigged to kiss. I said, Annie, you got to kiss seven guys. Let me see them. I'll see if I can do that. She likes it. And we watched all the kissing, and uh, we chose Chris Pine, who became a, a star, because that was chemistry. Usually you try to do it a little before you let the actors uh, feel out. Some can act it, I must say, but most can't. It just has to be a chemistry, and uh, that's why it's hard to be an actor, <laughs> I well, gotta say. At the same time, it also means that casting, when you're done casting, in a way, you've done half the job. Yes, casting is the key to everything. You get the right people, you got a shot. You get the wrong people. And even there, they're wonderful people and they're good actors, but it just doesn't gel there. Some things work on the big screen, some work on the television screen, some work in the theater that doesn't work on the screen. So it's a very tricky business. It's, it's not an exact science, as they say. You got a trial and error. There's one sequence, an opera sequence in Pretty Woman, which was actually filmed in L.A., did that mean that he just constructed that one piece where they were above the stage and then the stage, and that was the only part that existed, or was the stage from a completely different theater? You didn't mention I direct opera, too. I don't, I'm not an expert, but I love doing that. It's a whole different uh, medium. But in that, it was all San Francisco's fault. We were rigged to shoot at the San Francisco Opera House, and lo and behold, a couple of weeks before, there was an earthquake here, and it took out the windows, and it made the San Francisco up unsafe. And what are you going to do? You can't stop. So we had a wonderful set designer, Albert Brenner, who I used many times, built just the uh, part of the opera against the studio wall, and there was nothing underneath. There were men in tattoos, moving <laughs> equipment underneath, but they did it up there, and uh, then I, I was required to shoot down. 
Marty Scorsese did it with a religious picture. A lot of shooting down saves a lot of money. So we got shot down on the opera and uh, shot up at them, and there's no wide shot <laughs> tying it in. And uh, I would have much preferred the San Francisco opera. And we used uh, some place in the uh, music center as a made-believe the lobby of the opera. When you've got partial sets, is it easier or harder? I mean, there's been a lot of green screen stuff. Does yes. that make it much more difficult for you as a director to deal with green screen rather than a set? A green screen is easier. Is it? I, I mean, you don't have to do crazy sets and be limited. You can shoot anything green screen. A lot of people don't know how to do it, but it's getting better and better. My son, who the only one in the family who actually went to film school, <laughs> shoots beautiful green screen for both myself and my sister Penny, and uh, he sh shoots it well, but it, it can be done uh, once the act is accepted, and uh, many of them do know it's part of the, the digital age, the green screen age, and, you know, all those explosions, you can't have people right, there, yeah. you could get hurt there. Gary Marshall, you, you give some examples of things that just happen, serendipitous moments, but obviously over you know, 40, 50 years, you can't give every... Can you give a couple of examples of those great moments that happened to you that aren't in the book? My sister and Cindy Williams were writers at the time I needed something on Happy Days. I came up with a thought of Fonzie and Richie dating girls from the other side of the tracks. We were late and we didn't have time for a big casting, so I went and got Penny and Cindy. I said, come, you'll act. And they acted and uh, they did this scene and... Uh, I think even the cameraman said, you know, this is a heck of a shot, this two-shot Penny and City as a bottle cap is from the factory. And suddenly I saw, well, there's a show. And I, I made a show for them, and it was uh, quite successful. Same thing with uh, Mork and Mindy. My son wouldn't watch Happy Days. He was seven, six and a half. The girls loved Happy Days. He didn't want to watch I said, why don't you want to watch Happy Days, Scotty? And he said... There's no uh, space people. Nobody's from the moon or Mars. I like space. I like Star Wars. I said, but you can't. It's 50s. You can't put a spaceman in it. And like any young kid, they know it could be a dream. <laughs> they know what the dream looks like. The screen gets all music and it's a dream. And uh, that's when we created Mork. It was just to try to get my son to watch my work. We created Mork, and that became a hit. And in movies, uh, I remember clearly on Pretty Woman, we screen tested all these guys to be with Julia because nobody knew really who Julia was so much. She wasn't going to carry the picture. And so we tested this one, that one, until I couldn't figure out what made her magical. So I tested her with Charles Grodin, a friend of mine who's very funny. And I told him, basically, he's going to do the scene, but he's going to ad-lib, and he's going to try to blow you out of the scene, right. try to hold your own. And that screen test was like a magical thing. She held her own, and I remember so clearly calling uh, the head of the studio and saying, you know, we're so worried about who's going to be the guy. I don't think we should worry so much. I think I know how to make this girl happen and where she is at and what's going to make her charming and funny. And uh, that was a big moment for me. Well, the big thing about Julia Roberts was that when she laughed, <laughs> the universe lit up. Yes. For reasons, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw that happen and you suddenly went like that? The first days we were shooting, and uh, she didn't laugh as an actress. She just laughed as Julia. It was a simpler time. Uh, I directed the two of them later, Runaway Bride, etc. But this was simpler, and they, it was a, a quieter time. They both were not big stars, and uh, Richard was, but back and forth. And I remember she laughed, and Richard and I just looked at each other and said, you know, we don't have enough of that in the script. And she says, well, I was just laughing. It doesn't say laugh. I said, no, we're, we'll find ways to make you laugh. <laughs> and uh, we started to do that. And she didn't walk well in high heels, which is important right. if you're going to do. A hooker doesn't have to, but uh, the, the star of a movie does. And I remember uh, dancing with her and trying to get her used to the heels. And uh, once she really dressed up in that red dress and smiled, 
we knew we were home with something special. It seemed like for that movie, there was a lot of spontaneity. The snail that flies through the air, the, the guy just reached up and caught it? I do physical comedy. I work for Lucy, remember? Then right. I taught what Lucy taught me to learn Shirley, so I know physical. But what was interesting is they thought that scene in this fancy restaurant was going to be about the mogul taking over the shipyards. And I said, I don't think so. I think it's about this kid never being in a fancy place. And she really hadn't eaten snails. But then when she did it, she slipped and she threw it. But she didn't see, a lot of times she didn't know what was funny. And I said, no, it'll be all right. She said, I look silly. So I said, then she went to the movie and she called, I had the way to catch it. We shot that a different day. So she, then she, that's funny when he caught it. <laughs> so it, it, it kind of uh, evolves and uh, we figure it out as we do it. But you try to get those moments to work and some work uh, bigger, better than the others. Uh, and she always had that, Tense thing because we're always doing jokes with her. She was in the bathtub and she she suddenly went under the water and I cleared the set. The crew, everybody ran out of set. She came up, nobody was there, so she laughed and laughed and then we couldn't get it in the scene. But she was waiting for the next thing to happen, so uh, she was always there in in all the takes and uh, uh, that made her very special. Well, you play a lot of pranks in your on your film sets, and that's just to keep things loose, right? Yeah, you know, sometimes actors are not uh, so different than children, and I work with mostly young. And uh, young, you have to keep them uh, from being bored. So I make up pranks, I make up games, I have all sorts of things going on. Gary Marshall, it, it sounds that even though it's you know 24-7 and you're going nuts, there's also something about being in a film. And I've, I've been an extra in a couple of films. There's something magical about being in that world. It's like you've entered this other space, and nothing quite tops that feeling. No, it is surreal. It, it, it varies between magical and boring. So in between, <laughs> you get a shot once in a while because it's so... Uh, uh, you know, so many people involved. You know, a writer, piece of paper, pencil, I could write. So leave right, me alone. Yeah. But uh, in film, you got to have the cameras work, the dollies work, the actors work, everything work at once. And more and more now we do handheld and steady cam, So, you know, you don't get a chance to just lock in on a shot. So it, it takes a little bit of work and you got to do it over and over again. But when you get it, you, you know you got it. And it is a different world. Even from the extras to everybody, they they help you. They get in there. There's always two that overact. We spot them right away on the fake take before the stars come. And then we, we do it. And uh, when it works, it's wonderful. And when it doesn't, it's, it's kind of depressing. But you got to do it again. The fake take? We do a take that we they think they're going to do a take, and we just want to see what everybody's going to do. <laughs> okay. And we do it with the second team, meaning not the uh, real actors, the stand-ins for the actor. And we do that till we see all the craziness that's going to happen in this car, and this extra is, takes his hat off and throws it in the middle of the scene. And I would sit at the money. The guy who just threw his hat up and he has let's work him a different day, let him leave, <laughs> let the next that's it. Okay, we got all calm people. Let's go. That's why I truly hire a lot of my relatives and a lot of people I know as day players because they don't get crazy. I learned from Bergman, uh, who used to keep the there was only four people on the island, right. so they all had to be in the movie. So I have my crowd that I use uh, they call them fogs, friends of Gary, who I've used before, and they always come through, and they're very fun. So one of the reasons, it's not really nepotism, it's that basically a matter of trust. Trust and self-protection. Uh, I use my kids, my family. Uh, Penny uses me. We use each other. If something is uh, difficult, we're never going to call our agent in overboard. That Coast Guard ship, there had to be one sailor out at the bow of the ship. And it was dangerous. The Coast Guard said, no, we never put anybody out there. I said, I got to put somebody out there. So I had to pick my son, and we literally tied him to the rail of the ship with ropes. And I shot above the ropes, and uh, he did all the lines when Goldie Hawn jumped in the water. Oh, Hell of a day in. at sea, sir, and all of that. <laughs> it was my son because he... He wouldn't call his agent. He, he would call his mother if it got too tricky, but he didn't call his mother at all. He just did it. 
The last movie you did was um, New Year's Day. You working on another movie yet? Well, if you make money with a movie, they don't let you alone. And uh, New Year's Eve did very well uh, internationally. Uh, did okay domestically. Critics didn't like it. But one guy wrote, funny though, I like funny. He wrote, New Year's Eve was watch a lot of stars get out of a clown car. <laughs> he said, that's what you described. But so what? It, it did well. And uh, they wanted, now, as we sit and talk, uh, a script about mothers is on the, my desk. I don't know. I don't want to do Day. Mother's Day. But mothers always interested me, different kind, because I like to do women thing, but there's a couple other scripts, and we'll see. I like television now. Television is much better creatively than the movies, because you can do more uh, in television. Home box office, Showtime, all the channels, Lifetime USA. It's not the same deal, and uh, they fool the public. You know, uh, internet is like 6% of revenue in the whole business, but they say, internet is taking over. Uh, The other channels are not killing anybody, but they're doing all right. But uh, there's so many different uh, venues to sell something oh, now sure. that it's good for creative people in television. So w- what are you looking at? Are you looking at a, a, a being a showrunner or just creating a show and turning it over to someone else? Well, I have to be there, but I don't have to. You know, yeah, when you put a staff together, people don't know this, but I'm telling right, yeah. you. You hire certain writers who you know are no good after six o'clock. You got to send them home. Then you got the other writers who can make it till midnight, one and two in the morning. So you got to get a bunch of the midnight writers with the six o'clock writers so you can get a, a staff together. I'm no longer a midnight guy, but I think I can show run till six and then turn it over to the other guys. So I'm creating some stuff. I'm trying to create one about my own family, about Penny growing up, who had an interesting, uh, uh, a childhood because I had uh, left for Korea. My other sister Ronnie went to Northwest and Penny was, grew up uh, alone at home for a while in New York. So it's all a matter of, uh, you know, making different characters and hopefully I can sell some. You've also been on the other side of the camera as an actor. You've talked about how each different actor, like Pacino might take a half hour to prepare and someone else might take five minutes. No, well, he don't take you to prepare. He just does a lot of takes. He right. likes to do so many takes that he's not acting anymore. And he does it beautifully, but he hits it. <laughs> you know, he hit it. You can right. tell. Uh, but different process. When I'm an actor, I'm a four or five take guy and I try to do it. But I act because I like to know what the actor's going through what the bad things are, when the director's not nice or whatever, and when it doesn't work out so well. Uh, I try to keep up with the current guys. Louis C.K., I'm doing a show for him. I'm going to act. So I learned something, what they're doing. They're doing digital, and the, now everybody's moving the camera around, and you get dizzy sometimes. But the kids are used to being dizzy. They're dizzy already from doing their thumbs and looking down. So it's a different world, and if you don't adjust and change... Uh, you, you don't work. When you're writing scripts working at that, you can't write a play about somebody disappearing if there's GPS, social networking, <laughs> texting, cell phones, and all of that. You're stuck. You can't. Nobody disappears. No. I mean, it's still uh, the police are even using it all. So uh, I think a historical uh, basis of stories, I mean, uh, I know two uh, Houdinis are coming out. And uh, it was already in ragtime, the Broadway right. show. But I think a very good business now is uh, theater. I have my own theater in Burbank, uh, 134 seats. What we do a whole season and live theater, I, I love. But you can do movies based on either cartoons, comic book characters who fly, and uh, people who uh, are historical. They, but with historical, you got to get English actors a lot. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> they do it better. It's as simple as that. So uh, I have never really got into that uh, too much, but who knows? I could do different uh, period pieces. Is interesting. It just costs a lot. Well, you've got green screen, which cuts the volume. Yeah, yeah, you can build the castle behind them. Right. Still. And you're seeing more on TV like that, yeah. Yeah, well, TV does it, uh, green screen. And now they they shoot less days. It's becoming so financially, to be financially sound, that it sometimes uh, overshapes the the picture you want to make. But, you know, there's ways to do it. I used to, as a producer, I learned to cut. I could cut scenes. Another serendipity, 
I'm doing Fonzie on jury duty, right? We build the whole thing. We have no room to build the jury room. There's no jury room. Well, we can't do the episode. No, no, no. You can always do it in the middle of Fonzie on jury duty. They're in the courtroom. The judge says, adjourn to the jury room. A man comes across with a bucket of paint and he whispers to the judge. The judge said, the jury room is being painted. Your jury will meet here. We'll be, he leave. Nobody wrote a letter. We say $15,000 on a set. The show went smooth. You can always fix it. But a lot of times it's hard. The game is how do you compromise well? If you compromise very, very well, you get a wonderful artistic picture. You compromise okay, you don't do so good. You compromise very badly, you get jumped to shock. That's the way it works. <laughs> Gary Marshall, have you ever given thought to writing novels? I tried yeah, everything because I'm very interested in, yeah. in uh, all the arts, how to do this. And uh, that uh, I, I tried writing short stories in a school. But I, I never got to, to do it because I, as I was writing, I saw it in my head. I would see it. And so, and I like to see it. But you don't see the same. I worked with a partner, Jerry Buzzer, for years. And we would once in a while write and then we'd say to each other, how do you actually see it doing? And we never saw the same thing. He saw it come from here and you walk over. I said, no, that's why I said directing is good to get more more control. So I never did a, a, a novel. My daughter, Lori, who wrote the book with me, was the journalism student. I wasn't. She graduated in Northwestern with honors. I, I had four Pulitzer Prize winners in my class, not in the school, in my in class, class, in my class. And they wrote very well. But I noticed whenever the teacher read papers out loud, they'd ask, to read Gary's, they'd say, because mine was a little crazy and a little funny. And so I said, maybe that's a way to go. Screenplay writing seemed to be comfortable uh, uh, for me. And the whole thing is to figure out what you're good at and what your strength is. And, and my strength, even when I was writing short stories, etc., was in the dialogue. And uh, I figured with the dialogue on paper was pretty good. If you got like a great actor to say it, it would even be better. So I, I did a lean toward doing that. Gary Marshall, you're saying you're not political, but your wife is. But, I mean, you're, you have your politics. Do you well, you've got to vote. That's a <laughs> and I would life. assume that if you don't, unless you're fighting with your wife, you're probably a Democrat as well. Well, she, she uh, uh, dictates what we are, yes. Actually, my family, uh, my father was a Republican, but we switched to Democrat. When I got well, it, it, the political scene in America has gotten really strange because the Republicans have moved so far right that I think a lot of former Republicans are now either independent or Democrat. Do you think about the state of the country or are you just busy working, doing your thing in Hollywood? No, you know, you, you underestimate the power of television and movies, you know. I was in Germany uh, in Munich doing something, doing some publicity thing, and I got back to the hotel, and there was a crowd there. And I, I said, who's here? And they said, you! <laughs> and they had all pictures of my movies and the pretty yeah. woman, and all, all, but they had everything. So I think you have to have a certain kind of consciousness to what you're putting out there and what people are doing. Now, they always say, Hollywood all left, and blah, 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 but then there's that whole right thing. There's a, so many movements. One of the, there's, you know, kids who were on TV shows when they're young and grew up. So one kid, I think he's from uh, Growing Pain, said something about the gays and the thing. Now, the other kids who are on TV shows now have a committee, and they're protesting that. So everything is, in a way, political, and uh, you have to realize that the economy is not the best, so you don't want to ever have characters who are arrogantly or rich or throwing it around. The key to a lot of, uh, of stories is rooting interest. You know, you didn't... In, even in the caveman days, the right. guy didn't come in and told the story about a guy with the best cave who didn't lose it. He had another best cave. Nobody likes that story. <laughs> so you got to be careful of who you're trying to do when the political climate keeps changing. Now, coming from the Tonight Show, I learned to write. I can write Mitt Romney jokes. I can know all the jokes. But, but I, I think the work 
is uh, really part of the political scene. And now the right is going so far, you can't do this. That censorship is, is even more so. Uh, what scares people like me more is the new move, I think, I don't know what state it is, I don't want to pick on a state, but now they can take my movies and, without my knowledge, edit them and take out anything that's too smutty. And uh, even though we were censored already, right. they can take it out. That's a little scary that they can, you say, what's the best part? I like the editing. Now, political people are editing your stuff, and that's a little bit scary, I got to say. Gary Marshall, did you plan to write a second memoir? Well, this is two. My right, first a third a, memoir. A third one. Well, uh, I don't know. I said a lot in this, and I went through a lot of in this, but you never know. Uh, my daughter is still a good writer. She writes a lot. She ghosts things. I don't know. I may. I really think I'd like to, to try now and uh, do television and movies. And, and again, I, uh, to go and do something different, like to go do an opera, is kind of like a vacation. You do a whole a whole thing and the, the, I don't know how many opera fans you have, but they, they say the opera Placido Domingo, who's a big guy, he said it's going to not work out for opera unless we get film directors in. Right. So I'm one of the film directors and I have Woody Allen did it, uh, Bill Freakin, and we're trying to get other film directors to do it. And uh, I remember I'm talking to James Cameron, we're both publicizing something. So I said... James, you would be great. You know, I do two people in a room. You do blue people flying and <laughs> carrying on. I never saw such carrying on. I said, you know, I did this one opera, uh, The Grand Duchess of Jealousy in Offenbach, right, who also did the can-can. Look at him with a mixed-up career. But I had 86 people on the stage for the first act curtain. coming. I said, it was so exciting. I said, and, and what I really thought of, James, is that I wouldn't have to shoot it. There it was. The curtain. Hey, they applauded. And he, he looked at me and said, well, you know, if I don't shoot it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and I was, well, there goes live theater. I ran out the window, James. But I quickly came back and said, but you do 3D. You can do a 3D opera. That would be uh -huh. sensational. He said, that's not bad. So I quick told Placido, get James to do it because he's a brilliant, brilliant man. I, I envy those guys who do that. I, I don't know how to do that, but uh, my son does. Gary Marshall continued working over the last four years of his life as director of an animated series, Wendy, as executive consultant for a revised version of the TV show, The Odd Couple, and appearing as an actor in several television shows. The studio finally got its way, and his last film as director, Mother's Day, was released in late April 2016. Up until his death, Gary Marshall was also the president of the board of directors of the Falcon Theater in Los Angeles. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 